This podcast is brought to you by Stonely, an interactive guidance platform for self-serve support. Deflect tickets, decrease costs, and delight customers with beautiful step-by-step guides that can be embedded anywhere. Hey everyone, welcome back to Beyond the Queue, a podcast by Stonely that looks at the human side of customer support leadership. I'm your host, Meredith Metzger, and this week I'm excited to welcome Stacy Justino, the Director of Customer Happiness at Wistia. In this episode, I talk with Stacy about her five-step process for spinning up support for a new feature or product. After 10 years in customer support and many product launches, Stacy's got it down to a science. Hey everyone, today I am very excited to welcome Stacy Justino. She's the Director of Customer Happiness at Wistia. Stacy, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. So I'm sure in your, you know, 10 plus years working customer support that you probably have a lot of experience, you know, kind of starting up support for new products across different companies. So today, could you kind of walk us through your process of how you spin up support for a new product? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so first things first, I think the, the best way to start is to lay out the knowns and the unknowns, right? Um, depending on whether it's a product that is going to be launched in beta or a little bit more polished, um, you're going to have a list of things you know and things you don't know at launch. Uh, This forces you to start documenting key information, plus gives you a bit of a roadmap to work from. So it gives you just a good base so you know like, okay, what are some things we absolutely need to have out the gate? And what are some things that we know we won't have on day one, but we want to get that wrapped up within the first month or two months of the after launch. And then after that, you have to figure out what open issues, pain points, or bugs uh, you'll be launching with. What customer-facing information can you publish from day one? I think that's super important. While you might not be in a place to, or it might not make sense to launch with a fully fleshed out help center, uh, you likely have enough content for an FAQ. And I think it's a lot more comforting for a user to go to a, at least an FAQ to be like, oh yeah, these are some of the questions I have and get those answered. And as a support leader, um, it's super important because you're going to hopefully deflect some tickets right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do you go about just kind of a follow-up there? How do you go about figuring out what topics you should tackle first? Uh, that's a great question. I think that if you if you did a beta, I think a lot of times using the data you got from the beta can really help inform what information you should be putting in that FAQ, what maybe some standard text or macros you might have from the outset. So yeah, I think using the information um, that you have at your disposal to kickstart things. Maybe you did an internal like play test or um, user test uh, as support, the support team or internal uh, employees using that, right? You know, most folks who are in support kind of have a little bit of a sense of what uh, issues somebody might run into or what parts might be a little tricky, either in the support team or also a lot of times um, product managers can help with that too, um, engineers. So I think using all of the information at your disposal to get as much customer facing information out there and maybe at least have some internal documentation 
Um, you don't have to build out everything, especially if, you know, the one thing I would say if you're you're anticipating the product changing fairly uh, significantly in that beginning period, putting out the information that you know will be pretty static or being prepared to update it quickly so that the information you do have customer facing is accurate. And then if this is a new product for an established support team, this would be where I would suggest leveraging your existing systems and processes rather than reinventing the wheel. Or even if you are coming to a, like a, it's a new product, if you have some experience of what's worked in the past, uh, I think you can start there, right? If, if it ends up not working quite right, you can try things differently, but you might as well start with what you know. But I would think also the other part that's important is be sure not to over-engineer things for the new product uh, since you need to have some flexibility built in there, right? You're not going to anticipate every single thing that a customer is going to run into. So I guess that, that flexibility, I think, is pretty important when it comes to spinning up support for a new product. Um, so kind of an example I would give is uh, I'd start with maybe adding a new tag for the product, but wouldn't go forward with introducing more granular tags for the product until you have a better sense of the main reasons customers are writing in about, and also the ticket volume, right? Um, one issue that might be kind of major in your brain that you think people are gonna write in about uh, might be user permissions, but turns out those were pretty clear. You're not getting very many uh, tickets about that, but you made like three like pretty specific tags about things that fall under user permissions. Um, and so I think it's a little easier to add some granularity. And from the beginning, you're probably going to be looking into individual tickets anyway, unless your volume is, you know, very, very large. So uh, you're going to be digging into those specific tickets anyway. And I think that what kind of happens next is ensuring you have a process to escalate issues. Um, you don't want to have a bug come up and have a process in place uh, to be able to report that bug and track it. Uh, the process itself isn't quite as important as making sure that all folks involved are on board with the process and that there are expectations um, in terms of what information should be included. Who is that information being sent to? Is there a agreed upon timeline for when you would get updates, say from engineering or maybe a QA lead who is, um, you know, doing the, the, the testing or trying to reproduce that bug and f try to uh, resolve that issue. So I think it's more about expectation setting. To start, maybe it's just the one engineer who's leading uh, the, the lead engineer and you just go directly to that person. Um, and I think this happens even when you're like in a more established team and this may be a secondary product or like a major feature. Um, and that's okay to start that way, right? I think the other really important piece here is having a regular cadence of syncing with the stakeholders in this sort of escalation or bug tracking process, um, whether that's weekly or monthly, to follow up on open bugs or issues, getting some timelines or details on fixes or updates. Um, I think this also is true for the product managers, making sure that at least monthly, um, you have sort of a meeting or a readout so you know what updates are coming down the line because a lot of times when it's a new product, uh, updates and feature releases are coming hard and fast. So um, you need to make sure that you are in the loop on those things. Okay, so how do you go about getting everyone on board? You know, especially if it, maybe it's a new product at a larger company, you know, compared with startups or smaller companies like how do you go about getting all of the stakeholders together and on board? 
Um, I think what is really helpful in that regard is, you know, when you're talking to customers, you try to meet them where they are and instill confidence that you are here and authority and being helping them solve their problem. I think the same is true for uh, getting uh, stakeholders on board in any situation. So I think, you know, instilling confidence in product managers, QA leads, engineers that having this process in place is going to help resolve bugs faster, have more satisfied customers, um, and getting them the information they need. So speaking to them in their language, I think is super helpful, right? It's easy for us to support people to talk through like the way we talk about things, customer satisfaction, uh, good customer experience. And that is important, but I think uh, translating that more into the things that sort of motivate or um, help the other teams do their jobs better. So giving them as much technical detail, being able to reproduce it yourself before you hand it over to those folks. I think um, those things definitely help get everybody sort of um, rallied around this this process. And then I think one of the other steps too is deciding who who is gonna be like the first support person working on this, right? Oftentimes it might be you, right? But eventually you need to have somebody else who is going to be answering these tickets or questions. And uh, I find that the first like hire for this is super important, right? Because you're not gonna have every single process uh, built out. A lot of times they're going to have to be doing some testing on their end, writing up, you know, documentation, internal, external, doing maybe a little bit of reporting or digging into tickets and coming up, you know, like doing a, like a mini voice to the customer, right, for this product. Um, so that takes a, a, a little bit more advanced skill set than just responding to customer um, questions. So I think for me, that has always been pretty critical for the success of spinning up a new product. And so I think the things you're looking for is somebody who is curious, is like an adaptable problem solver, um, who's not afraid to sort of speak up, right? Because they're going to have to be going to the product managers or to the engineers or QA person or bringing stuff up to you, right? And um, kind of back to your previous question about how do you get everybody on board? It's not always a uh, smooth sailing from day one. So the you know, whoever this first support hire for this new product um, has to be able to, you know, raise those issues either to you or ideally to the, you know, the group who's working together on getting this product successfully, like launched and supported. Okay. So this is kind of a big question, but how do you, how do you go about finding that person? Like that, you're probably looking for kind of a unicorn there. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I think in, in my case, I have been pretty fortunate that a lot of times when I've been spinning up support for a new product, it was as a part of a new product for an already established company. And so, you know, one thing I think you can do is always be looking for these people when you're hiring. So this is the kind of traits that I'm always hiring for, even in just like a more established support team, because um, most companies are probably going to have like a new feature that you really need to sort of spin up almost like a new product, right? Some features require that or um, a new product. So I think that you're, I'm always hiring for that. So yeah, like I said before, somebody who's super curious, a problem solver, thinks kind of outside of the box or considers sort of the multiple facets that go into a particular problem. Um, I think somebody who 
is good at articulating sort of problems and solutions, I think is also important. So I think for me, looking for people from a wide variety of backgrounds. So I think some of the people, just generally speaking, who I have seen to be most successful aren't people who have maybe been lifelong support people, although some of those folks are also great. But I think you're looking more for those traits rather than a certain um, job profile they had in the past. Okay, so I'm curious, what have been some of the backgrounds of your most successful agents? Uh, Teachers uh, have been really great. Um, A lot of folks who have some experience in the restaurant industry, you have to be really quick on your feet oftentimes when you're working in the restaurant industry. You have to deal with a lot of things that are outside of your control, which oftentimes happen in a support team and most definitely happen when you're supporting a new product. You have to be able to course correct. Um, pretty quickly. You also have to share your ideas. So that's some of the other um, traits. I'm trying to think of any other roles that I've, oh, people who have been involved in like volunteer work or, you know, volunteering for campaigns, because it takes a lot of sort of like grassroots organizing, having to wear many hats, right? I think that's the other thing too. Roles that require somebody to, uh, like I said, wear many hats or uh, do a little bit of a lot of different kinds of work, like multitasking, I think um, really helps, especially for someone coming into a role where they have to uh, support something pretty new. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you say it. Like those are all very, as you mentioned, highly adaptable, very agile and high on empathy, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. High empathy as well. Okay. Very cool. So how do you, as you're spinning up support for a new product, how do you know how many hires you need to make and how quickly? Uh, That's a really great question. So I think it will depend, right? Like if you already know um, you have some previous data from say, like products, either that a company already has out there um, or like to my point from earlier, if you had a beta with actual customers and you have some uh, usage data so you can kind of guess. You could maybe make some educated guesses, but I think that you probably have to play it a little bit by ear, right? Uh, Oftentimes I found that it's a little bit slow to start, right? (laughs) And then it can ramp up pretty quickly. So I think you just need to be like prepared to put your foot on the gas in terms of hiring folks and being, um, have a pretty good plan for interviewing, getting people on board, or having some sort of backup plan in terms of like, okay, do we need to uh, utilize some autoresponders that have some um, frequently asked questions addressed in them? Um, Because not everybody's going to our help center or FAQ um, while we get the headcount to do this. I think it also depends on the kinds of issues. If you have, if this is a more technical product, then you might need to have start off with a few more folks because you know that the number of like tickets they can reply to a day is going to be lower because of the product, right? So I think if it was, you know, less technical, you know there's going to be more account-based or um, one, uh, one and done sort of first contact resolution type responses, then you can kind of go off that. And I think you can make some pretty educated guesses. So I think you could probably um, figure out how many responses somebody might be able to send a day and work backwards from there. That's kind of how I would do it. And then I think the one other thing too, kind of going back to syncing regularly is um, 
maybe it's monthly maybe it's every other month it depends on how sort of rapidly things are changing is like i said being flexible and realizing okay we are incident creation is ramping up pretty quickly and so we need to either hire more expand our kb or um figure out what sort of these things are product things we can uh, maybe influence product <laughs> to, to move the needle on. Or this is where we need to start building out more process. So I think what can happen is you can keep plugging along and wait a little too long to put, uh, put a little bit more process behind things. And so I think that uh, having a very regular cadence where you're like, okay, do these processes still make sense? Are they working? Or is it time for us to put a little bit more process behind this or adjust how we're doing things because it's not it's not working? Cool. So I would you mind walking me through just like an example or a couple examples of how you have executed these steps in real life? Uh, yeah, for sure. So one of the first times I did this was at Big Fish Games, and I was tasked with spinning up support for our very first iPhone game. So, wow. <laughs> yes. So up until that point, Big Fish Games had had some browser-based games, but mostly was downloadable games for PC and Mac. And it was our first port of one of our uh, PC or Mac and Mac titles to an iPhone. And this was like at the very beginning of games on iPhones. And we were just like, we're not sure if this is a thing that's going to actually be right people are going to play games on their phones like what uh, <laughs> exactly so we didn't want to like build out this whole robust system because well we don't even know if this is going to be a thing people are going to want to buy or do um well as you know that is <laughs> where we are today it, it was it was successful um so at that point like i at first was you know answering some of the few first uh tickets we were getting about this. And then um, one of our, you know, really great reps, I had her pulled over from uh, su supporting our uh, live chat for um, our PC gaming uh, customers, our subscribers, and, you know, kind of let her run things in terms of like figuring out what how we should best troubleshoot or respond because this was kind of brand new to us. Um, in this case, you know, it was on phone. So there's not a lot of technical troubleshooting you can do. So a lot of it was more about like, okay, what can we do to help these folks when we don't control the billing? At least it was iPhone. So there was only one device. It got a little more complicated when we moved to doing Android too, when you're like, uh, yeah. there are hundreds of Android devices with multiple operating systems. And then it was more about building that relationship with the, the tester, the QA team who was doing the testing for those porting those games over. Um, and that was just basically like one person on that team and the one person on our team and then uh, meeting weekly and then tracking uh, the incident creation over weekly and then trying to figure out how we should best tag them. So in this case, we did tag every game separately. And so um, to start, it, it was, yeah, a little bit of trial and error. But, you know, now that is uh, <laughs> the majority of uh, a lot of Big Fish games is, uh, is now mobile, right? So I think we did lay a good foundation for what became the majority of what we were supporting in like probably in like two, two years time. Wow, that's a pretty quick ramp up. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious with the tagging. So you said you were tagging by each individual game. Um, if you could go back, would you do it the same way or would you do something different? 
Um, I think I would. So in this case, we had a field that was just all game titles. And then we had a set of like topic tags too, right? So we had both. And the um, support platform we were using at the time enabled us to be able to do uh, reporting so that we could look at just one game and look at what are what are all the issues for this specific game. And then we could split it out. Also, another field we had was operating system. So um, it enabled us to do the reporting we needed. And in that case as well, uh, with Big Fish Games, um, Big Fish Games is, is primarily like a publisher. So they developed some games, but each of those games could have been actually developed by a different developer. So it was actually sort of mission critical to be able to look at it on a game by game level. So as you've gone you know, through all these different like product launches or feature launches, how do you decide what level of support or like what level of preparation you need between maybe a smaller feature versus a totally brand new product? That is also a really good question. I think there are a couple inputs. I think complexity is a big one, right? Like, so a feature or a product might actually not be super complex, right? Um, either because it's launching with only a limited feature set or just in general, maybe the feature isn't super complex. So it might be a feature that tons and tons of people are going to use, but it's pretty simple and straightforward. So maybe if that's the case, you update your KB documentation, you update your internal docs, and you maybe write a macro or two, and then of course add a tag. And then maybe it's a quick demo in your weekly team sync or in a email, weekly team email, however your team disseminates that information. Um, but if it's maybe a, a bigger feature or something more complex, then I think in those situations, getting more involved with product earlier on so that you have time to develop the resources if, if it is, so much that you requires like a workshop, right? You want to have enough time to prepare for that. But you also then need to consider is like, okay, when is the product side going to stop making changes so that we are not duplicating our work? I think that's the other piece too, right? Knowing when that sort of line in the sand is. And hopefully if you have a good partnership, you can say, hey, we need to have like a week, ideally, before... Uh, it goes live and when sort of most of the major changes are done so we can ensure that all of the documentation we have is accurate. Okay. Yeah, that, that would be tough when, you know, everything's changing so quickly and you're trying to get, you know, up-to-date screenshots or descriptions and yeah, that, (laughs) that would be a lot of work, I imagine. Yes, yes. And you don't want like to duplicate the work. You don't want to uh, train your team on something and then have it change. And But sometimes it's outside of your control, right? So I think that you have to be upfront with like, hey, we actually won't have the, the KB updated on time because it actually takes us this many hours or days to make those updates, get all those screenshots. Or if if you get the, the the product managers to be able to send you those the screenshots that you need, then maybe that's okay too. So I think um, being sort of upfront with the, the teams you're working with on like what sort of runway or uh, lead time you need to be able to uh, spin things up, I think is really important. And making sure that people are on the same page. So maybe we don't have this at launch and that's okay, but making sure that the expectations and the like you kind of level set so that you don't get to launch day and somebody says, well, why isn't it there? So that nobody is surprised that things aren't how somebody might have thought they should be. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That kind of segues into my 
my next question, I'm curious, uh, how you do this as a leader or what advice you have for other leaders as far as managing those expectations uh, with product, with the rest of the company's leadership? How do you kind of hold your ground and really communicate what you need as the support team? Yeah, I think that's, it's super important. Um, part of it, I think, is building a rapport, right? I think that that's something that's made it successful for me in the situations where I've been in is that, um, even in less sort of critical situations, you've built up sort of the like reputation. It's like, okay. Um, Cause I think a lot of times what can happen is there's just a mismatch and uh, it's like, oh, they need too much time to prepare or they're asking for too much information from us, uh, from the product side of things. So I think that uh, that sort of level setting is important. So they know that, okay, if Stacy is asking me for X, Y, and Z, then I know that that is like really mission critical for the the support side to have a successful launch when we go live with this product or feature. So I think it's about building some of those relationships beforehand. And like I kind of mentioned earlier, speaking to people in sort of the language that resonates with them. So, hey, we know that if we have up-to-date and robust help documentation, that will reduce our tickets on this new feature by X percent. And so I guess pointing to the the results from when it's gone well, or more importantly, the results from when it's gone poorly, when the, the planning didn't happen, or we didn't get enough lead time. Like, yeah, remember we, we actually received 200 tickets because we weren't able to get the, the KB documented in time. And if we, when we have gotten it up to date, we've only gotten like an increase of like 2% of volume for a new feature. So I think being able to point back to the data is super helpful. And I think making it easy for that information to be provided, be like, hey, this is information we need to update our KB to make sure it's accurate. So I think being as uh, giving as much context as possible so that folks know why you're asking for certain things or why you need this much time rather than just like, oh, we need two weeks to get all this work done. And if you like outline like, okay, well, there are actually 20 KB pages that need to be updated for this feature because it's mentioned in all those pages because this fe feature actually touches these other parts of the app. Mm. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so kind of speaking of that, you know, that communication with the product team. So earlier you mentioned that sometimes your product team might send you screenshots. Are they... Are they involved in that content creation process in other ways? Um, do you guys, I assume you collaborate pretty closely as far as creating the content for these new products? Yeah, yeah. So at Wistia, um, in the past, I guess, maybe a year or two on the product management side, they've been able to provide us with really thorough one-pagers that we can either directly use for our internal docs or be and be a really strong base for a uh, new public facing documentation. And it, that's been super helpful because the product managers are the most familiar with the new feature or new product. Um, so being able to leverage that information that they're already, oftentimes they've already written up for their team's usage. So why would we have to write it all from scratch if it already exists? So I think sharing that knowledge is super important um, and really helps reduce that duplication of work and also um, accuracy, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you're able to share what it, what all is on those one-pagers. Um, just like key features, going into sort of details of like how, how the thing works, for example. It might also include like known issues, 
like supplementary supplementary sort of documentation oftentimes um might include basic like troubleshooting if it is something that might require different troubleshooting than what is you know the team usually does or maybe um if there's a known issue that requires somebody on our team to take some sort of action or an engineer needs to do something because it's just of where that feature is in the the sort of how complete it is or whatnot um then i think that information is often included might also include when the next update is going to be it's some stuff like that or link to like the roadmap doc for the product or feature so uh, that's what we found to be really helpful and it's been super great to have that information and then you like you know who wrote it so then if there's something that needs clarification you know exactly who to go to to be like okay can i get a little bit more info on this or now that it's live it's out um customers are confused about x or it doesn't work quite as intended so you have this like doc you can go back to oh interesting yeah that sounds like a really efficient way to do it cool yeah it's working pretty well for us good (laughs) have i how many new products or features have you you all launched there at wistia um we have two products right so we have wistia the wistia app and then we have soapbox and then um in the past two years we've released two pretty major features our channels feature and then uh we built on top of that to release our podcast functionality those are probably our two like biggest features that um you know are pretty we're pretty involved in terms of uh um how they show up in the app works a little different than how uh the the previous way of organizing uh, media files was with our projects and then what you can do with channels. You can publish a channel and then it's sort of like a carousel of videos, like a playlist, but very customizable. And you can have people subscribe to newsletters from that and uh, email them when you have new episodes. So it worked very differently. So those are pretty big updates that we had. Uh, Of course, we had smaller updates along the way, but I would say two in two years and then Soapbox is I think almost four years old now, but so like three or four major, major updates over the past three years. Wow. (laughs) I'm curious what, uh, kind of a two-part question. What were some of the biggest challenges and what are you most proud of that went really well? I think what I'm most proud of is the work going into sort of the podcast launch. It was our chance to sort of build a better process around a feature release, a big feature release. We didn't really have that on our support team before that. So one of uh, my senior support specialists, his goal was to uh, document and the process and sort of work with the product managers to agree upon what how we should do that going forward. So that was smooth and it was a consistent process. There were some changes pretty close to the, 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 the release, but my team really handled them in stride. And um, because it turned out to be a feature that not everybody was gonna jump on overnight, not everybody who uses uh, Wistia for video hosting or video marketing is gonna have a podcast the day, on day one of the launch. So we didn't actually do a super involved training because we weren't getting tons of tickets. So what we actually did was we had a group of three of our customer champions who were the primary three folks who were focusing on it. Um, everybody on the team, I think, would have been able to handle any of the tickets that came across, but we wanted to be able to give uh, very specific feedback to our product team. So we thought that having a smaller group of folks to 
um, focus on that, especially because the volume wasn't super big, was going to be more impactful. And um, we also helped some folks who were moving their podcasts over the Wistia. Um, those same people uh, did sort of some one-on-one -on -one support to help those folks, those customers get their podcasts over. So um, I'm really glad we had the, the bandwidth to be able to do that. Okay. Yeah. It sounds kind of like a good way to invest long-term in your customer success as opposed to just being reactive. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Well, I think that's probably a good place to start kind of wrapping up, but I do have one final question for you. Um, and that's what advice do you have for other up and coming support leaders? Um, I think most support leaders have their customers in mind, right? Hey, what kind of effort are we asking our customers to go through? Um, how can we get that customer feedback back to the rest of the organization? But I think uh, it can be less uh, natural to remember that both your agents and your coworkers are your customers too. So um, a lot of times you focus, okay, how can we make this a better customer experience? How can we do, uh, uh, require the customer to put forth less effort. And then a lot of times that effort isn't, doesn't go away, right? Maybe the effort is moved to the agent and uh, that agent also has a productivity expectation. So a lot of times when I'm looking at processes, internal processes, I'm like, okay, what are all the things that a customer champion has to do every day to answer one ticket? And they're answering how many tickets a day and they have a productivity expectation of X, is that is what we're currently asking them sustainable? So that's the, the thing that I would say is that remember that your customers are both your end users, your customers, but also your agents and your colleagues. So going back to kind of what I talked about before is like, how can we connect with our colleagues to sort of figure out what they require when we're working with them? And I think that looking through that lens um, helps you approach problems maybe a little differently. Perfect. I love that. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Um, and just thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. This was really insightful. Awesome. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Beyond the Q. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time.